Well, today, as we dive into our overview of the chapter, um, some of the resources that I used um, were the ESV Study Bible, and I'll also be reading from the ESV, um, the English Standard Version today. And um, the other resource that I used was the Bible for Everyone by theologians John Golden Gay and N.T. Wright. And I'll be focusing on Genesis, the book Genesis Part 1. So I want to just do just a short overview of what we're going to be digging into today using our HEART study method, the H-E-A-R-T study method. Lisa's going to put that into the chat so you can see it as we work through it. And this is just a way that you can unpack the scriptures and allow them uh, allow an application process out of them because we don't just want to get knowledge, we want transformation. And so we want to be able to apply God's word. So some of the themes we're going to be exploring in the chapters today were there's going to be an introduction of rest and Sabbath. And so what we can see is we want to be able to find Jesus in the Old Testament. And we see that literally right from the very beginning when Sabbath is introduced, it points forward to the rest that Christ achieved with his resurrection and ascension that will be fully manifested in the end of times, in the, in the great consummation at the end um, in eternity. So that's a beautiful picture right away in the very, very beginning of what is to come in the end. We're also going to see the theme of the formation of humanity. And so yesterday um, we read Genesis 1:26. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And what's so fascinating about this is the divine son is the image of the invisible God. And man was created in a way that reflects the imaging relation among the persons of the Trinity. And so we see father, son, and Holy spirit all involved in the creation process the redemption of man from the fall of sin includes recreation, his being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness in the image of Christ. Such an important role in all of what God had planned for us. The other theme we're going to look at is work and purpose. God created a garden, this perfect dwelling place for himself, and he created us, man, in his image to share it with him. And he gave us jobs and work and purpose and meaning. And, and this isn't about your job or your paycheck or your title. God's original purpose for humanity was that we would serve God and that we would serve his purposes. Now, what's so, so cool is we see Jesus coming on the scene when he came to the earth and he spent some time, his last moments in a garden where he poured out his very soul to God. And then there's a garden, another garden to come in Revelations 22, where it talks about a river of, of the water of life, the tree of life and the leaves, which are the healing of the nations. Night will be no more. There'll be no need for the sun for the Lord God is our light and he'll reign forever. And this is where us, his servants, will fulfill the fullness of this true calling to worship God and to serve him forever and ever and ever. And so again, this beautiful picture starting at the beginning, thread throughout the whole story right till the very end. We want to explore the um, scripture in context. And so, you know, we see in the life of Jesus that he spoke in parables in order to teach us important truths about the kingdom of God. And theologians and experts on the Old Testament explain that the creation account is actually written very much like a parable. That's not to say that it's not true in the way that it's written, but it's written to teach us about God and his heart for creation, not so much as a literal account. And so what we see in chapter one is this day by day account of all that God created. 
And then in chapter two, with which we're going to study today, is it's like a flashback. So we're going to go back to parts of the creation, and we're going to find out a little bit more about how God brought things to life, which is so exciting and beautiful. And I'm so excited to unpack it with you. So how does this apply to our life? So the chapter opens up with this establishment of physical rest. So stopping from work. And then it ends, the last words are, they were naked and unashamed. So there's this idea of even internal or soul rest, an internal peace with simply being, complete rest and phys physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And, you know, God calls us, he says, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so today, the application and what we want to reflect on is where have we disconnected the gift of rest from our physical and our internal, because God wants those both to be completely integrated. Let's just take a moment and pray. God, we want to thank you in advance for what you have to show us today from your word. Our hearts are open. We're ready to receive fresh manna into our spirit and fresh understanding from your Holy Spirit. Would you reveal to us today a clearer picture of the person of Jesus and the relationship that he desires to have with us? So let's trust Jesus as we dive into this journey together, where we have disconnected true rest and allow him to integrate supernatural rest between our physical bodies, the ability to stop and our soul space. Because when these two worlds come together, we will be able to connect to our divine God-given purpose as a gardener created to cultivate beautiful things for God's kingdom here on earth and as a guardian to walk in the authority over the works of darkness that Jesus gave us. So that's just a little overview of what we're going to be talking about today. And now let's dive a little deeper into the chapter. So Genesis is derived from the term generations. The dictionary describes this as the origin or formation of something. And so there's this beautiful meaning that is formed when, if we were to say, Genesis is the book of formation of the future generations of the world of God's people. The creation account was written as a parable, a story to illustrate God's intent for creation and humanity. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read from Genesis chapter two. We're going to start at verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. I do believe with all my heart that God wants to do something profound in us today through the reading of the scriptures, the invitation to enter into the rest of God. We're not to strive for what God has already provided for us by grace, yet the book of Hebrews teaches us to strive to enter into the rest of God, that we don't fall by the same kind of disobedience. I know I have been disobedient when I've strived for the wrong things, maybe striving to do everything right, striving to be a good example, striving to work hard enough for God. Striving goes way back to a sort of form of striving to earn love and acceptance from God or others. And I've strived for what I've already been given in God freely. And I have not strived for the very thing 
that Paul urges us to strive for, strive to enter into God's rest. The heavens and the earth were finished. God accomplished what he set out to do, and now he sat back and he admired it. God's precedent here suggests this exact order for you and for me, for us to plan our week's work, for us to execute it, and then for us to stand back and admire it. Now, finished did not mean that there wasn't more that could have been done. Jesus said these exact same words on the cross just before he breathed his last. He said, it is finished. The work is complete. I've done what I've come to do. But yet, even in this statement, there was so much more to do. Christ would rise. He would pour out his Holy Spirit on the earth. These are huge things to do, yet he still declared that it was finished because all of this was set in motion and he was completely obedient to the Father. God completed what he set out to complete and then he rested. And some would say that this rest is an invitation into a position that God has established for us. Our purpose established from rest, rest in the completed work of God through Jesus Christ. We're invited into God's grace and mercy, into a completed salvation, a secure covenant of everlasting life and an heir in God's spiritual inheritance for us. There was no evening followed by morning refrain for this day, prompting many to conclude that the seventh day still continues, which is also referenced in John 5, 17 and Hebrews 4, verses 3 to 11. God rested from the works of creation, but he continued to work in providence, and then after sin enters the world, in redemption. And as human beings, we do look forward to entering into God's consummation rest in, for all of eternity. So man imitates the pattern of God's work and rest in the Sabbath cycle of days. The Sabbath points forward to the rest that Christ achieved with his resurrection and ascension, and which will be fully manifested again in, for all of eternity. Now, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Now, if you think about this, this is actually kind of an odd thing that God blessed a day. A day is not a living thing. God blessed um, animals. Man said, be fruitful and multiply, blessed it but he blessed something that was not a thing, not alive. He blesses people, but he doesn't usually bless just things. But not only does he bless it, but he makes it holy. He sanctifies it, which means that he made a claim to it, which means we're to yield to that claim. The Sabbath day is God's day. Sabbath means to stop. This is the stopping day. God claims this day as his own and instructs us to stop our work and admire all that God has done all week long. How would our lives change if we followed this exact pattern? If we worked for six days and then we stopped and we celebrated and we admired one day a week, all that God had done, all that we have done, what could change inside of us if we were not so driven by the next thing we need to do and practiced just being, just delighting, just resting and celebrating and being thankful for all that is. Let's notice that this order was established before sin ever entered into the world. So this is a part of God's perfect picture and plan for us. Let's continue reading in verse four, the creation of man and woman. As I said earlier, this is a flashback. So we're going again backwards to find out a little bit more about how God did this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens, when there was no bush of the field, 
was yet in the land and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Throughout chapter one, all the way to chapter two, verse three, the generic word for God is used in the original Hebrew to denote that there is a, de a deity, the transcendent creator was the one who is doing this work. But now, the reader is introduced to God's personal name, Yahweh. The use of Yahweh throughout the passage underlines the personal relationship, the nature of God towards his creation. God spoke light, land, water, sun, moon, stars, seasons into existence. On the, at the command of his voice, they were created. But the scriptures say that Yahweh spoke the vegetation and plants and trees and animals to come up from the ground. And Yahweh formed the man, the master gardener. I want you to picture this, kneeling down into the dirt, putting his hands literally into the dirt and forming and shaping the most special part of his creation with his very hands. And not only that, because just forming and shaping would create like a doll, like uh, just a form of something, an inanimate object. But Yahweh yet knelt down beside this form and he breathed his very life into it, causing it to become a living soul. In a sense, he gave mouth to mouth resuscitation to this human creation. He breathed his very life inside. Now for us, like here on earth, we tend to separate the soul from the body. Some of you might be here this morning in body, but your soul or your mind is somewhere else. We can disconnect the deepest parts of ourselves from our body, but Yahweh's intention for humanity was integration. He did not form the body and then put the soul inside of it. He formed a human with the soul and then he breathed his very life, his breath, into us so that the whole person can relate to God and serve God. That's our very purpose. Yahweh breathes his life into us. And at the very end of our life, we give that breath back to him. For some of you right now, God is giving you the gift of supernatural purpose. Some of you are receiving a revelation of your created purpose right now as we go through this beautiful origin story. Adam in Hebrew means human, means human being, and Adama means ground. And so Adam was quite literally being made from the ground. That's what the word means. And humanity was made to serve the ground, to help the ground grow things, to master the ground and the animal world. God made humanity both master of creation and the servant of creation. Does that remind you of something? King Jesus came to this earth and said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. Humanity and creation have this beautiful, mutual, symbiotic relationship, this dependence on one another. 
We cannot do without nature and nature cannot do without us. We're formed from the ground, created to work the ground, growing beautiful things from the ground, and then we'll return to the ground when our days are up. While human beings have much in common with other living beings, such as animals, God gives humans alone a royal priesthood status and makes them alone in his image. And of course, we see references throughout scripture to this. God has life in himself and imparts that life to his creatures. The impartation of physical life anticipates the impartation of spiritual life, life in the sun that comes to us through the spirit, reborn and made completely new. Thank you, Jesus, for your completed work on the cross. Let's continue reading in verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It, was, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold that is good, Bedulam and Onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is Gihon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So the human, uh, we see in verse 15, the human's role is not only to be a gardener, but to be a guardian. In fact, the command was given to Adam that applies, God gave the man a leadership role, including the responsibility to guard, to care for, to keep all of creation, a role that is also related to the leadership responsibility that Adam has for Eve, the helper that is fit for him. And we're going to read about that soon. While God generously permitted the man to eat from every tree in the garden, God prohibited him from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fruit of this tree has been variously understood as giving these four things, sexual awareness, moral discrimination, moral responsibility, and moral experience. And of these different possibilities, the last is most likely because by their obedience or disobedience, the human couple will come to know good and evil by experience. Now, experience gained by fearing the Lord, as we see in Proverbs 1-7 and throughout other scriptures, is wisdom. That while gained by disobeying is slavery, which, Adam, which is something that Adam and Eve will learn in the next chapter. Now, in verse 16, some of you might be actually asking the question, why would God instruct them not to eat of a tree that would give them knowledge and wisdom that could be helpful for them in life. Well, John Golden Gay unpacks this possibility. He says, we cannot absolutely say for sure, but perhaps there's a clue in God's response to Solomon's prayer for wisdom. This wisdom belongs to God and God is the Lord of it. And so if it belongs to God, then God has claim and he claims the right to give it when he sees fit. Now, it would seem that God would intend that all would have wisdom, but what if this wisdom is found in the discipline of not simply taking it? 
eating of the tree was pushing into God's realm, attempting to take what is not yours in an effort to be like God and to be able to discern good from evil. Reverence for God and living by God's ways is the first principle of wisdom and the way to knowing the difference between good and evil. Resisting the temptation to take knowledge for oneself by their own means is an expression of a wise attitude towards God. Obedience to God's ways is the truest form of wisdom that anyone could desire to have. Interesting thought, for sure. Let's keep reading in verse 18. Then the, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heaven, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God said that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. This is not to assume that Adam was lonely. Being alone is not the same as being lonely. The problem with being alone is that he was unable to fulfill that which was intended to care for and to keep the garden, to do all that God had asked him to do to fulfill his purpose. He needed help. Humanity is divinely commissioned to govern other creatures on behalf of God. The ultimate purpose being that the whole earth should become the temple of God, the place of his presence, that it should display his glory. The writing suggests that God wonders what the human will call each animal. Now, God could have looked into the mind of the human and know what he would do, but it's almost as though he resists in order to enjoy the wonder of this task. This shows that God restrains his ability to know what's going to happen and just to sit back and to wait and see what will happen. And this restraint is so that God can enjoy true relationship with us because one cannot have a true relationship with someone of whom he can predict everything that they will do. So we will see this beautiful attribute of God in excited wonder and curiosity of how his creation will complete the role that he has given him. In giving the human the job of naming all the animals, God was giving authority over creation. In verse 15, God gives the human in the garden to keep God gives the human the garden to keep and look after it. And it's a very big job. He's going to need help. He's going to need labor force to fulfill this leadership role. And in naming all the animals, he didn't find anyone that could be suitable to help him. Not even his trusty dog. There are many theologians that suggest that the term helper or the King James version calls it a help meet is an inferior being or one who is subject to the first human. However, the person most described in the Bible as helper is God himself. Now, I'm not suggesting that this helper is equal to God. Instead, that helper does not actually mean someone that is inferior. Your helper is the strong, capable one able to get you out of a mess. Being a helper does not imply subordinate. This term, suitable or fit, suggests someone who is either in front of you or opposite you to point to the complementary roles that men and women were designed for. 
Neither has authority over each other, neither the leader or the led. It's men and women together that comprise the representation of God in the world. Adam means human. Eve means life. Adam and Eve, human life created in the image and the likeness of God. So beautiful. Okay, 21, we're finishing up here. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And in that rib, the Lord God had taken from the man. Um, he put into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, at last, this is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Adam literally translates into the word human being. And that word is spelled out in Genesis 1:27 as male and female. Notice that the Bible refers to Adam as the man all the way until Genesis 3, until the woman is created, Adam is simply the human representing humanity. God did not take another handful of dirt and create the woman from scratch. Instead, God used a part of the first human to create the second one in order to create close attention to the relationship that they were going to have with one another. The woman was born from the man signifying their oneness and the oneness that Christ has with the bride, his church. Adam joyfully proclaims, at last, it is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This terminology is used elsewhere of blood relatives. And this sentence in the story of Eve's creation make both the point that marriage creates the closest of all human relationships and is also important to observe that God creates only one Eve for Adam and not several Eves and only one Adam for Eve, and thus establishes the order for marriage. Adam does not name the woman in the same way he did with the animals, but it's almost as though upon seeing her, he knew that she was the suitable helper for him. And like a revelation that he had, he saw her and he called her woman. The idea of suitable helper starts first with acknowledging one's need of help, which is this beautiful posture of humility in our humanity. Naked and not ashamed. The final description that they were naked and not ashamed offers this picture of innocent delight and anticipates further developments coming in the story. We all know what comes next. Everything he created was very good, and it answers God's purposes and expresses his own overflowing goodness. Despite the invasion of sin, the material creation retains its goodness. Which brings us back to a full circle place of complete good, comfort, peace, rest, contentment, and delight, which was God's desired plan from the beginning. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for the reading of your word today. Would you make it alive in our hearts as we receive it? Would you transform our hearts and our lives and speak to us personally about what it is that you need to speak to us about through your word today? We're so thankful for your word that brings life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.